0: Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast, episode 19. In this episode, I talk to Ryan Jansen and Paul Blankley, the founders of Zenlytic, a company that strives to bring the world generative AI-powered, self-serve business intelligence. But what does that even mean? How does it work? And most importantly, will it make the analyst role obsolete in the future? Join us as we discuss the problem that Zenlytic aims to solve, how LLMs understand your business data, how they'll affect the role of the data analyst in the organization, and where data products are today in the innovation cycle. Let's get to the interview. Ryan and Paul, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. How's it going?
1: It is good. Thanks for, thanks for having us on. Excited to chat
2: today. Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks so much for hosting.
0: Sure thing. So can we just start off, can you talk a little bit about your backgrounds and what Zenlytic does and where you saw the need for the solution?
1: Totally. Yeah, I can kick things off there. I'm Paul. I'm the, you know, one of the co-founders of ZenLitek with Ryan, and I'm a nerd's nerd. I was math and computer science undergrad, math and computer science grad. Uh, Ryan and I actually met when we were in grad school at Harvard, uh, both doing technical degrees together. So we worked on everything from, you know, tracking asteroids to doing all other sorts of cool AI projects in grad school. Uh, right after that, we started uh, data consulting. So that's setting up a lot of analytical systems for companies from startups to Fortune 500s. That's setting up all the stuff you think about when you think of modern data stack. That's, you know, 5Tran, pulling data, data warehouses, configuring BI tools. And with our background in AI, which when we were in grad school is when the first transformer paper was published, we saw just this huge and growing gap between the capabilities of, you know, what I would call legacy BI tools. And what became and was becoming at that time possible with uh, large language models and natural and NLP. And that's that's kind of when we started Zintletic and we decided, hey, there is actually a really big opportunity in one of the biggest software markets on the planet, uh, business intelligence to, you know, create a next generation product that makes self-serve actually possible. So our kind of tagline is, you know, we're the world's first self-serve BI tool.
2: Yeah, in my background, I, I zigzag back and forth between uh, engineering and venture capital, basically. Engineer first in my native Canada, moved to the UK, became a VC there for a long time. Got really excited about building businesses. So I crossed back across the table, you know, did that master's degree, uh, which is, you know, where Paul and I met. And then we sort of started working together from there. And yeah, the, the funniest thing that I took away from that whole experience, uh, having lived on both sides of that table is funny because, you know, I lived as an Excel monkey for a long, long time. Uh, and then I went back, uh, I remember the 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 first line of Python I wrote was the first day of our master's degree, actually. Uh, and I was just, I couldn't believe how powerful uh, the tools had become and like Python and R and some of these dedicated languages for analytics. You know, if you know what you're doing and how to use these tools there, you can really navigate things quickly and easily. You know, what Paul and I ended up doing while we were doing consulting work, but that just completely widened the gap from the people who don't know SQL or Python, uh, you know, don't have access to those tools. And I've always been kind of shocked that was the case. You know, self-service kind of a four-letter word in uh, analyst circles. There's been a debate whether or not it's even been possible for a long, long time. I think that's rightfully so, because I think it only just became possible probably in January of 2023, this year. And that is because this new technology have have unlocked some new ways for us to consume data. And, you know, the world before this, uh, you know, self-servement static dashboards, right? And it's like, okay, you can look at a dashboard. If you want to go much deeper than that, generally it results in a chat with a data analyst, right? So like once you go beyond basic filtering and you want to start pivoting or drilling or exploring more deeply, in most cases, that's pretty hard to do without advanced knowledge of SQL or Python, SQL and or Python, and a good understanding of how relational data works, right? Uh, that's kind of where we came in and we said, all right, well, we wanted to build a better self-serve experience. We integrated that technology quickly into our existing self-serve BI platform in the form of a uh, always-on data analyst. So this chatbot can talk to you and answer your data questions. It takes a couple seconds instead of a quick data poll and opening a JIRA ticket to the data team. And you know, our goal is not to replace the dashboard. It's, it's our, you know, Synalytic is a great platform with a good dashboarding experience. That's not what we're trying to replace. I think people often have that misconception. Uh, what we're trying to replace is the conversation with the analyst that inevitably happens after you look at the dashboard.
0: That's a really good point. And I have to say, you know, in the industry, certainly self-serve BI tool is sort of a holy grail that has never to date really been reached that the further away you are from the data and not having the context and not understanding, like you said, relational database, the harder it is to ask meaningful questions. And then of course, inevitably, you're gonna to have to talk to an analyst and get somebody to translate that into the actual data tools to be able to pull that uh, and and help you shape that meaningful question. So I can see how now utilizing an LLM could kind of bridge that gap. So Zenlytic is a chatbot, basically, that uses a large language model, just like ChatGPT, that you can ask questions about the business, about the data. And so two questions for you. Can you explain what that means? And first of all, what is the difference to you between data analytics and business
1: intelligence in your mind. So the so so I'll just kind of talk through like how how it works and I think that'll also explain maybe a little bit of differences between like business intelligence and data analytics. I would say maybe that I would kind of posit that business intelligence is the goal. Like that's why you're doing this in the first place. Doing the actual analytics of slicing these things, filtering these things, going, you know, into the tool and doing that work is kind of the the analytics but it's like what you really want at the end of the day are insights that are going to change your behavior something that's going to make you invest more in a certain area run a campaign to these people you know like like you you want data to result in actioning items that change the way you do business other and if it's not going to do that then you probably shouldn't be investing in data so so i would say that's maybe a little bit of the the difference there i would say one way that we enable that is that we're not just taking in a question and just generating some SQL and surfacing that insight back to the uh, back to the user. The reason for that is that SQL can be really really complicated and metric definitions are very complicated. And you really need someone with who has, you know, knowledge of SQL, knowledge of relational databases, has in-depth knowledge of the business to be able to say, hey, this is how we should count active users. This is how we should define revenue. These are really important, really complicated concepts in pretty much all businesses. And this is stuff that you need an expert to define. But once you have the expert go in and define that, just asking for different slices of it and asking for different views of it and asking for different filters and things, that's not stuff you need a human to answer. That's stuff that once that hard work has been done of defining it correctly, you can use large language models to surface and make those insights available to the end business users.
2: And, and going back to your original question of like data analytics versus BI, I would say by a way of analogy, you know, I think of like maybe like a film projector or something like that. And if data analytics is, is the film and, you know, maybe data is the film and it's a big mess, data analytics is kind of looking at little bits of film. Uh, I think of BI as the lens, right? Uh, data analytics is a broad thing that could mean, uh, it covers a lot of different fields, right? From all the way from the theoretical to the practical. Uh, I think business intelligence is taking all of that, you know, the information and the power you have at your disposal there Uh, and giving it a focus and an impact, uh, as Paul says. And it's kind of like a big problem with our industry in general. I feel like data folks tend to start with what the tech can do and then focus on the problems it can solve instead of the other way around, right? So it's a very tech first approach uh, instead of a human first approach. And that's part of the reason why it feels like there's a gap between the data analysts and the end users, because the end users, they don't care about data at all. They just care about Uh, you know, how it solves their problems. (laughs) They don't care how fast the database is or uh, how many billions of rows you can process or, you know, whatever, how cleanly it's modeled. They just want to know the fastest, easiest, lowest friction way to get the information they need to do their jobs better, right? And I think business intelligence is the lens that focuses that.
0: A lot of times when I'm working with the business side, and i try to get requirements i always try to ask especially with you know department heads or somebody who's head of the business i'm like what is your pie in the sky what would you ideally like to see more than likely you know it's not possible because of the tech but then maybe there are proxies maybe there's some way around it that like we could get some sort of close approximation but having you know such revolutionary technology come along certainly helps you get closer to that goal of giving them the pie in the sky
2: one of my favorite questions too is like it's almost like a, it's it's funny because in the community, I think it's a bit of like a trope now, but I think in practice, it 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 has a ton of value. It isn't asked as often as it should be, which is like how how would your actions change if the data said this, Ooh. and the data said like okay, I can get that for you. What would be different if this was the if this was the outcome, if this was the outcome? This was the, and and Absolutely. you know, thinking critically about how that data is being used is super
0: valuable. That's an excellent question. You know what my favorite question to ask is when they come with a question about that that they want something from the data. My question is why why do you want to know because <laughs> sometimes they're asking the wrong question but we'll get to that and they don't realize that because again they are removed from the data and they don't know what's possible percent uh,
2: and that's that's actually one of the reasons why we're so excited about llm technology is exactly that right and there's there's been language applied to bi tools for a long time including us you know before the revolution happened we had a single query box, right? You could type in something it would translate it into a structured question. But those data polls often involve that sort of refinement and people don't know exactly what they, they, don't know what they want exactly. And you have to clarify, you know, what what is your focus? What metrics are you looking at? Do you mean gross or net here? By switching to a chat-based paradigm, you can actually change that into a discussion and, and have the AI agents sort of refine that question and make sure the person's asking something that will deliver value in the end.
0: One of the issues with ChatGPT in general is that that language model was built once on data that I think leads up to 2021. So it doesn't include training data that's younger than that. So anything after 2021 is not necessarily included in it. So it is missing important context of kind of recent life. For example, it has no notion of Kylie Minogue's Padam Padam, which is the song of the summer in 2023. But... How how do your domain-specific LLMs differ from that?
1: So I think the, the important thing about LLMs in the way that we use them is that they're a reasoning engine and it doesn't actually matter what time of data they're trained on. And l- l- let me explain why. Because what we're doing basically is that we're using the LLMs to basically translate from a user asked this question. Based on that question, it doesn't matter, you know, data around current events or anything and just pick from the list of these companies metrics. So you're basically giving the large language model, the context of the business, you know, either go and pull the things that we'll then need to create the SQL query or ask a follow-up question and the ability to look at all that context and ask a follow-up question. If it's not clear what's meant from that question or go and pull the information and, and go and send it back to the user that is actually just sort of a general reasoning ability. It's it's not actually dependent on when. So if it had a cut off at 2022, or if it had a cut off in 2020, it actually wouldn't make a difference for us. Um, now, now you're right. If you said, you know, filter down the data for just the date that this song was released on, that it, that it would fail at. Luckily, we haven't seen too many people asking about that. So uh, <laughs> so far, it's not an issue. Well, there's, there's a really important second piece of tech here too,
2: right? Uh, which is the semantic layer. And like LLMs are one necessary condition, but not sufficient condition for self-serve. Semantic layer is a necessary, but not sufficient, but together they can deliver a self-serve experience. And th- the semantic layer, we can, we can dig into other stuff it does, but one really important thing it provides is context, right? Context on your organization. I guess maybe it helps to define semantic layer. That's kind of the tool that translates... Uh, you know, business type metrics into a query on a relational database. That's cool that, you know, those have been used ever since business objects. But the, the neat thing is by, that they, that is the clearest map of how an organization thinks and acts, right? It like you encode all of your important metrics and KPIs and dimensions, you know, those are all captured in that, you know, single document basically in a structured way. Uh, and that gives the LLMs tremendous context to understand the business, now, that solves two problems, actually. It solves the pre-2021 problem. That semantic layer is kept up to date, and that provides up-to-date information on the business. It actually also solves the, the bigger problem that I think people ask about LLMs is the, are they training uh, the LLM on my business's data problem, the privacy? And, and that's that's a big question, right? And I, I think that there's other approaches that are getting LLMs to write SQL and have intimate knowledge of uh, a company's data warehouse and things like that 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 do suffer from that. Uh, our approach with the semantic layer uh, actually corrects that um, because when you use a semantic layer, uh, actually no company data has to go to the LLM, right? You only send some of the metadata that's inside that semantic layer. You know, the LLM sees that you have a metric named gross sales, but it doesn't get to see what your gross sales are.
1: Absolutely, and I think this is one of the ways in which you'll see analysts' job changing Uh, as large language models become more and more prevalent inside of organizations is that you will actually, as an analyst, spend more time defining these definitions that then large language models use to surface to the end users, as opposed to you trying to keep up with all the requests. Instead, you're kind of building the machine that lets all the requests be answered in seconds instantly from could be thousands of people, as opposed to just trying to get back to emails as fast as you can and just you know, ever dreading more headcount being added and more questions coming in. So it, like it decouples the amount of time the analyst spends from the amount of questions being asked of the data. And that's really important.
2: I like to think of it as the sushi shop analogy, actually, where data analysts that are doing quick data polls. it's it's almost like you're uh, like a waiter or a waitress at a sushi restaurant. And people ask, they want, you know, a salmon nigiri, and you got to bring it out. And you're, you know, you're bringing up the tuna rolls to people. Going forward as we have more uh, automation opportunities unlocked through these tools your job's going to go from bringing people sushi to actually building one of those cool conveyor belts like they have in in like Japanese sushi shops. And you're the person that's actually, you know, just builds the conveyor belt uh, and this thing just gets shipped out and people can self-serve and take the sushi as they need.
0: Okay. But two questions about that. One, as I'm thinking about it, one, it seems to me that even when you define certain metrics, they may be nuanced and different from let's say department to department or from pole to pole in terms of like how you sample the data and what, you know, positives and negatives exactly mean. So that is still for the end user. Actually, it I mean, it wasn't for the end user. That was really the analyst stepping in and understanding. Is the end user going to need to understand this or is this the LLM going to help with that?
1: So the LLM can certainly help with it. And uh, let me let, let me give an example, maybe. This might not be exactly what you were thinking of, but say someone comes in and says, you know, Uh, How how have subscriptions changed in the last week? That's kind of an ambiguous question and could mean a few different things depending on, you know, what's going on. So uh, a good response isn't just a query that comes back. A good response is something that comes back and says, you know, hey, I see a few different things here. Do you mean, you know, new subscriptions that we've added that has this description that the analyst put in it? Do you mean churned subscriptions? People who we've lost, who have canceled the subscriptions. That means this with with this definition. And you sort of ask that clarifying question, being able to give the context that the analyst has put into the definition of the metric. And and if as long as the analysts do a good job with that with those descriptions, then the end users are able to say, oh, well, I was thinking, you know, acquisition, like new subscriptions. So yeah, let's let's do that one. Um, the really important step there is the disambiguation, that when you ask that kind of question that might be across two things, it's able to serve up all that context that the analysts thoughtfully wrote, not that an LLM just guessed that, but that the analysts thoughtfully wrote, and that that is what allows the, um, the business user to basically disambiguate it.
0: My second question is kind of around, I guess we call it QA. If the... Answer comes back, I think a lot of times the analyst could intuitively look at it and be like, you know what, this seems a little low. Like, let me double check the the math or the query or what we're pulling, right? In the context of of intuition for the data. Okay. Is that lost?
1: I think that's another crucial reason why the semantic layer is important. Because when the when the analyst is defining that semantic layer then they're they're checking, hey, this definition is correct. If that definition is correct, unless something changes in the business, it will be correct forever, unless there's a pipeline error. If there's a yeah. pipeline error, then the analyst really should be notified about that as soon as it happens, regardless of, of how the data is showing up in the tool.
2: Yeah. But I think you cover a really important part of data tool design in general, and this extends into semantic layers as well. Auditability, I guess, is super important, right? This manifests itself in many different ways, right? I mean, everything from the debate about should we have column level lineage at the transform layer, all the way up to the all too frequent question, you know, hey, uh, you know, where did you get this number from, uh, from the end user? It's like, oh, yes, yeah, you know, are you sure this is accurate? It's funny, because it's, it's actually correct. It's it's important, because a big part of business intelligence is telling people numbers that they don't want to hear, right? Yeah. So like, maybe maybe conversion rate is actually down. And uh, when you're giving people bad news, their, their first impression is to not believe it. So that just makes transparency, auditability, even more important, right? Uh, I think how that manifests in the semantic layer is twofold. It's feedback on the inputs and feedback on the outputs, right? So like the inputs are uh, like, you know, a series of metrics or whatever you're putting, you're asking about, the outputs is a SQL statement. So, you know, our approach, and this is especially true with LLMs, right, is you ask a structured question, we over communicate what's actually being visualized to actually to like excruciating details. So you could actually remake the the entire query with a screenshot of that LLM feedback, for instance. Uh, So over-communicate that to the end user, you know, builds trust, shows transparency. Secondly, you want to be able to audit the SQL generated by the semantic layer. And most most tools that have semantic layers will do this, right? But in Zenlytic, for instance, you can expose the SQL that's being generated if you are technical and you want to see what's being written. You could actually say, okay, show me the SQL. Take that, you could you could copy and paste that into your data warehouse query window, for instance, and get the same data back and then, you know, massage and tweak it to your heart's content.
0: That makes sense. And, you know, side note, and this is a whole other conversation in a different episode, but a lot of times the pipeline errors are discovered through the numbers being weird, right? You're like, yep. oh, wait, this doesn't make sense. And then, oh, because we didn't onboard last month's data.
2: Well, it's funny because if you're not getting if you're not spotting pipeline errors, that is probably just a sign that nobody's using it. <laughs> you know, like these are complicated and there always are things to adjust. And you know, there's on there's ongoing edits. So
0: absolutely uh, those
2: are actually probably a good sign that people are scrutinizing the data.
0: It also speaks to the way that the data pipelines and the and the entire platform and infrastructure were built that usually when it's you know fast and quick and to answer a certain thing and is not engineered in a uh in a way that monitors and, and alerts about issues, then that's what happens. That's how, in, in my experience, that's how we've discovered, them. but that's because it wasn't built in a robust way, but then you never kind of have that, you know, then it's a tech debt. You don't go back and fix it because you want new features.
2: This is, this is like an engineering principle in general, but it's, it's super true of data pipelines is, is that it's always good to build something with the, you know, build for the worst, hope for the best. So like build it with the assumption that something is going to break. Right. And it, it's kind of like, have you ever seen those things on on big rigs, like a like a like a flatbed truck, where they have every lug nut has a little arrow on it that's kind of pointed in a non-gravitational direction? So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, that's that's just a great example of like robust engineering, where you assume that at some point in time one of those nuts is probably going to come loose, uh, and then you just build in early warning signals to correct that easily at the source, right? And data engineering is inherently complicated, uh, you know, inherently messy. Uh, And building in visibility, you know, at every stage in that is actually an important part of delivering on that trust and transparency to the end user.
0: So Zenlytic comes at a time when there is an explosion of data tools in the industry. Can you talk about the impact that this revolution in general has had to both individual lives as well as to businesses?
1: So so we, we are definitely at a time where there is a huge kind of unbundling, if you will, of a bunch of different things that you know exist now as standalone tools like you wouldn't have even probably talked about data observability as a as a wholly separate tool before Monte Carlo and similar company, companies came along um and you've got a lot of other products like that um i would say one one difference for us is that we're we're one of the we're, we're going after one of the sort of original markets. there's a lot of companies out here making great products adding adding new markets like new data catalogs new data observability tools uh, we're going after one of the sort of older classic, classic markets. And I would say the, the main way that we're going to impact people's day-to-day lives is that it's going to change what they're working on. They're doing a really good job defining these metrics, making sure that these definitions are correct or what the business is thinking about when they're defining them and then la- allowing the large language model to be able to surface those to the end users asking the questions. So I think that's really how the job changes is, and that's really exciting, by the way, is it's like you're spending less time at asking these ad hoc questions, more time doing the really sort of rewarding work of making sure the definitions are are good and doing the advanced analytics work that no LLM is going to do that you really need humans to be writing, you know, complicated code for.
2: I would say generally, there's been a lot of talk about bundling versus unbundling. uh, And I think we've seen unbundling happen over the last several years in, you know, the data industry. Uh, I actually think that generally, when when you have a bunch of growth and innovation, it sort of leads toward the unbundling phase. And then, uh, you know, when things, when the economy turns south or whatever, that starts to head towards bundling, right? And like, you know, tools consolidate at that point in time. And I think that we're probably starting to hit that elbow now, partially driven because it's been a less than stellar economy for the last few months. Partially, I think we're at that level of maturity in in the cycle where people start to look towards bundling. So I think, uh, I don't know, I don't know a crystal ball, but I if I were to guess, I would say we're going to start to see more uh, of the bundling happening as we go forward. You know, I think we're at that stage of the cycle.
0: I agree with you. I think uh, just from having looked at, you know, done sort of the survey of data tools for, you know, specific purpose of data warehouse and visualization tool, there's just so much out there, and it's so hard to figure out exactly what to use for what purpose and what connector they have, and etc. And I kind of liken it to just like the the streaming wars, where you know there was like Netflix and Apple Plus and all that, and you've got so many streaming services now that you kind of, when you disconnected from cable, that it's too much. And I think there's going to be uh, a little bit more of a bundling going on now. We've hit that elbow probably because now you're paying for streaming services the same that you were paying for cable. Yeah, totally.
2: that's right. After all seven of your streaming services. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and it's also this complexity too, right? Like I, I have to, if I'm watching a show now, I have to Google like where to stream first so I can figure out who has it on their well, streaming God, yes. service.
0: Yes, yes. Uh,
2: that that's that's like ten times worse in the data world because you know like the number the number the number of interfaces scale as the squared relationship with the number of tools basically right or it's like an exponential relationship. Uh, so you know as we add more and more tools, we're just adding more and more edges to connect them with, uh, right. and it gets and messier have, and messier.
0: Yeah, and you have an added layer of um, optimization to that as well. You want them to work well and not slow each other down. That's a whole other headache.
2: Yeah. Oh. Yeah, 100%. And, and you have to consider fragility, right? The more edges you have, yes. you know, the more places there is, like stuff usually breaks at the boundaries, right? So like, uh, and the more boundaries you have in your stack, the more fragile it becomes. But you know, I think it's been driven by there's been a huge amount of growth and demand for this. So that uh, look at 2022 as a really roaring tech market, for instance, uh, uh, you know, that leads to people getting optimistic and trying new things. And I think it's great. That's where innovation happens. What's the Warren Buffett quote, right? When the tide goes out, we'll find out who's been swimming without a bathing suit. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So, uh, you know, I think this is a natural cycle where, you know, innovation, you know, happens first when there's lots of opportunities and lots of booming. And then in that consolidation time uh, is when you, you know, test what's really, really valuable and you sort of refine. And then there's going to be another heyday where more innovation happens and, uh, you know, it's and rinse, repeat, basically.
0: So we talked about this a little bit, but I want to kind of touch on it again. Um, you know, Zenlytic gives the power to the end user, who's not necessarily a data analyst, but a business user. And therefore, my experience has always been that the I question, you know, do, does that end user know the right question to ask just because they don't necessarily have the familiarity with the data? In your mind, first of all, as we said, Zenlytic kind of solves that through the uh, uh, context layer. But do you think, are there any other consequences like that of letting people ask the questions directly of an LLM without any kind of, I don't want to say that it's without an analyst being present or being in the mix?
1: No, so I think think that's a great question. And I think that actually speaks to where I think sort of like future of data and future of industry goes. Um, And to, to reference this, I would look back at, you know, big technology swings that have happened before, right? When computers first came about, you had typists. And those people would basically work the computer for the executive who would just kind of sit back and do the same thing that they used to do, which is ask the person to do something and they would go and do it. Computers got easier. And it's it's not like executives couldn't make a mistake with the computers, but the computers got better and better, easier to interface with, easier to understand, easier to know what's going on, better auditability so they can see, hey, okay, I know that I'm making this change. This is what I expect it to be. I think the same thing is going to happen with data. And we're just at the early innings right now. Whereas previously for the history of data, you've basically had an analyst who you just kind of asked to do stuff. That person runs off, does some magic, comes back with the answer. I think the new world that we're entering is where people are actually able to come in and ask their own questions about that data. And for sure, there's going to be some mistakes made. That's definitely going to happen. But as it progresses, more and more people in the business will just view this as a normal thing that they can do. They can just go and ask these things. And they'll learn as they go, just as humans learned computer interfaces, that this is just something you do. This is just, you just kind of figure out how to do this on the job. And that's just how things work going forward.
2: Yeah, I think, and Paul, one thing Paul really mentioned uh, that I think is the most important thing there uh, is sort of tighter feedback loops. You know, in the case of Paul's typist example, you, uh, you you know, I, I think that's what actually the computer did better than anything else, right? So like when in the typewriter era, if you were typing your own letter and you put a character down wrong, you know, that, that is a 20 minute mistake, right? You throw out the page and you start typing all over again. Uh, And and when you're an executive uh, and you're not a professional typist, for instance, and you make that mistake, that's a big mistake. Fast forward to word processors. And if you type something wrong, it's, it's a half a second mistake, right? So like, it's just, go back and correct it faster, basically. And you know LMs are locked at in a lot of different ways for a lot of different industries. So I think there's going to be a lot of really cool opportunities you know beyond just data for that. Uh, what that means for us is that type feedback loop and articulating you know the right question. You'd, you'd be amazed. Uh, you know we've looked over the shoulders of some of our users before. Uh, and uh, people will have, ask absolutely torturous questions, you know, sometimes just single word, uh, you know, just like Facebook tell me about Facebook. And it's like, okay, like, what do you, do you want to know this, the okay. robots in your Facebook, but uh, you don't know about your Facebook campaigns? Like, tell, tell me more. But, you know, so like they, they start off with a question that wouldn't work as a data question, but because the LLM can deliver that tight feedback loop, you know, it's no longer a four-day turnaround to a data team. It's instant. Okay. Well, like, let's talk about Facebook. Like you, are you thinking about your advertising effectiveness or what? Like, tell me more the LLM will actually guide that user into the proper question that gets them to the output that they wanted.
0: So what is in the future for Xenlitic and for self-serve BI tool, what are you guys excited about next that you're working on?
1: So some of the the really exciting things um, that we have in the pipe are one of those is the ability to create whole dashboards. So right now you ask questions, you can get answers back to clarify, you get like single sort of plots back. Um, The next big thing we have is for you... And this is this is really a tool for, for analysts at this point to be able to say, hey, I want a dashboard with net revenue conversion, um, you know, acquired users, row by campaign, have all of this month to date, and then have, you know, top line revenue metrics comparing this month to date to last year's month to date. And you just basically write just like an email to an intern that you want to create this dashboard for you. They go and then in seconds comes back with a fully created dashboard for you with all this stuff. And instead of you having to go in and figure out everything. You can just effectively ask your intern to do it. They'll go create it for you. You tweak what needs to be tweaked and you've got the, got the end product. I think the thing that's exciting for analysts then is if someone asks for a new, an executive asks for a new dashboard, that's going to be, you know, a long running report viewed by the company, instead of having to spend a few hours going in and individually grabbing everything, spend a few seconds and then tweak it a little bit, make sure everything's what you expect and send it over
2: uh it's we're, we're in kind of a funny place we're at a great place uh right now because there's so many neat directions you can take this technology actually kind of it's it's a rare opportunity even even in tech businesses a lot of the times you focus on you know one great idea and you refine it and you optimize it for a while after that but we have just such a uh, just like anyone else is using this technology is just such an open road ahead of us i would say generally speaking one thing that might excite me the most is increasing capabilities uh, of what a data chatbot can do. Uh, I think a lot of the time that looks from, that kind of goes from, uh, you know, descriptive to prescriptive to proactive, you know, to illustrate that with an example, like right right now you can go in and ask uh, all sorts of stuff about what your churn was and what was driving your churn and get to an answer from that. But there's a time not too long from now when you can, you know, log into Zoe the chatbot and they'll say, oh, hey, welcome back. You know, I saw last week you were asking a bunch of questions about churn. You should know that in the last 48 hours, your churn has increased by 7%. Like, do you want to start looking into that? And, you know, someone that could actually start sifting through the massive and growing amount of data that we have to find those needles in the haystacks
0: automatically. Uh,
2: that gets me really excited.
0: Yeah, uh, that really, really sounds exciting.
2: You know, I'd say just generally speaking, there's so much room for all of this LLM tech and we've we've had a, a seismic shift in the capabilities of computing. And this, these are the times when all sorts of amazing new use cases get unlocked and more than just data. I just feel like that we are at the start of the start of what will be the mother of all Cambrian explosions in how you interact with computers, right? And there's in the application layer of LLMs, I think is going to be very exciting place, uh, over the next, you know, six to 12 months, we're going to see people who are building proper startups that, that harness this technology. And like, to give you one, one small example, I just helped my wife put together a presentation for her work. And she, she's like, "Ron, I have to give this presentation in Japanese. And I don't speak Japanese, but she, uh, I hopped on chat dbt. I, I gave it a couple of sources. I said, okay, give me a PowerPoint with this. And I, you know, did some prompt engineering to specify title, text, you know, whatever. It, you know, it gave me a good draft. I iterated a bit, uh, asked it to do it in Japanese. Uh, it does that. At that point, I can't read it, but I'm trusting it. Right. Uh, and then I used a, a little known trick, actually, to turn that into a proper PowerPoint. It was a text document now and sitting in ChatGPT, but you could actually ask it to write the VBA script to turn this into a PowerPoint. So I did that, pasted it a PowerPoint, you know, click run, it turns into slides, a couple of clicks on the design, you know, pick a color palette. Uh, and it the end result was you know a, a very good amount of the way there for a functional presentation. Uh, and it took me you know five minutes. Uh, and my wife was just blown away. She's like, "How did you do this so fast in a language mm-hmm. that you don't speak?" And the interesting thing about that is that it was super powerful, but it still took a little bit of expert knowledge, right? Like I know a thing or two about prompt engineering. I knew that DBA trick, right? And those are just those little friction points that keep it. Uh, quite from going mainstream. I don't think that many people are building proper PowerPoints with ChatGPT yet because of those other points. I know there's a bunch of startups who are doing this now that are actually just taking those points out, turning them into a visual interface, for instance, that automatically pastes in the VBA. And that's going to become a super powerful tool for accelerating you know, the generation of a PowerPoint. And I think there's just thousands of opportunities like that. Pretty much every application layer piece of software can benefit from new use cases like that. And I think we're going to see a huge amount of growth in that like I said next 6 to 12 months is when they're going to start emerging.
0: Yeah, and that really speaks to the changing skills in the in our industry that it really is going to be about prompt engineering and understanding how to work with the technologies like I've you know when I get asked chat gpt going to put us out of a job it's like no but we will be replaced with people who know how to use it. Mm-hmm.
2: AI <laughs> yeah, won't take your job but someone who's good at using AI yeah, will. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Say, yeah. 100%. All
0: right. Thank you so much, guys. This has been really, really interesting conversations. Very fascinating. It sounds like you have a really great tool, technology, and vision. And so I want to thank you for coming on and talking about it and explaining to us a little bit more about business intelligence and uh, generative AI.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having us. Really enjoyed yeah. the conversation. Pleasure to chat. If
0: uh, people want to find out more about you or uh, follow you, where can they find you?
1: Uh, you can check us out at zenlytic.com. And uh, we're also, we also offer a free 30-day trial. So if you want to just hop in there, see what it's all about, and test this out on your own data, feel free to hop in there. Free 30-day trial. Don't have to put in a credit card or talk to a salesperson or anything.
2: And if you want to connect Paul and I personally, we're both active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, it's like Ryan Jansen and Paul Blankley. Uh, look for the nerdy ones and you'll probably...
0: Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?